Hi, my name's Elijah and welcome to Roots Podcast, an interview channel that takes its first series by diving into the personal stories of those in the hospitality industry, whether it be in the restaurant, out in the field, and those in the media, as they look back on where it all started for them. It is a retrospective look on the passion, ambition, and drive involved in a competitive industry. For my next guest, we have Lee Tran, who is well known for her freelance journalism contributions to some of the biggest publications in Australia, including Sydney Morning Herald, Gourmet Traveller, SBS Food, Good Food, and the list goes on. Lee Tran has been on a remarkable journey over the past two decades, and seems as though she's only going up from here. With the work you've been able to push and highlight through FBI Radio to now, starting a new project called Diversity in the Food Media that highlights and shares the journeys of people in Australia through food. And one little fact people might not know about you is that you were once Dr. Carl Krasinicki's work experience student, but we'll get into that a little later. With the uniquely filled career that you've had as someone who is passionate to share other people's stories, I'm fascinated to hear yours this time. So let's do it. Tell us about life of Lee Tran when you were growing up. Where did you grow up and what was life like? Sure. Thanks for the very uh, lovely and generous introduction. Uh, So I grew up in Cabramatta, which is in Western Sydney. I guess it's quite well known now for um, having quite an amazing multicultural food scene. But when I was growing up, that was just normal. Like you caught the bus and, you know, there are kids who are from Cambodian backgrounds or you know, their family was from what was then called Yugoslavia. Like everyone, you know, had a, an interesting multicultural background. And so I just remember going with my parents to eat like, you know, like um, a lot of Vietnamese food, obviously. So fur and, you know, um, I remember my dad really loved this thing, which is um, uh, this kind of like tomato rice with steak and... You know, we drink lots of like really tropical juices or shakes made out of jackfruit or durian or having like avocado (laughs) shakes. And, you know, that was just normal to me. And I remember, you know, I think this is what happens to a lot of kids from an immigrant background. When you look at TV and everyone on TV, everyone on like Neighbours or on the news is white. So you feel kind of ashamed and you you wish you were like a white person. And I remember being so excited when like a KFC opened in Cabramatta because I felt like, oh, that's what supposed normal food is. But now obviously looking back, I'm like, oh, I can't believe I was so excited about a KFC when obviously... (laughs) You know, like the fur restaurants or, you know, the local supermarket, which had all this amazing Asian produce is way more interesting than like being able to get, you know, those fat chips and those chicken pieces. And it's funny, I remember interviewing Pelissa Anderson, who's part of the Chat Thai and Boone Cafe family. And she was saying like, even her family, like, a special meal was getting KFC. Like that was a big deal (laughs) to get like KFC. So it's really interesting how uh, your attitude to this food really changes over time. And what was it like growing up as a a kid? What were your kind of cultural influences? What were you doing up in in Cabramatta growing up? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I knew I always wanted to write even when I was pretty young. I think when I was in grade one, I just knew I really enjoyed it. And it's funny, when you grow up in a very multicultural suburb, you never think it's different until you move somewhere else. So then when I was about um, 11, so in sixth grade, 
we moved to Haverfield and that's, uh, you know, known for having a very strong Italian background. But then I was like one of three Asian kids in the entire school. And that was a very different experience. Like I remember doing scripture or we, I did non-scripture because like my parents are Buddha. So me and this other kid, Dana, who's from a Muslim background, we didn't have to do scripture. We got to play with blocks, which was very exciting and very fun. (laughs) But then one of the teachers went up to him and said to him that he should talk to me so that I could practice my English. And it was like, you know, in my previous school, I came like first in my grade in English. So it was kind of that very surreal idea that like a lot of people had not really talked to an Asian person before. So that was quite confronting that people had these assumptions that you couldn't speak English or you didn't know anything and would talk to you like that. So that was, yeah, quite quite a culture shock. And so when you were growing up in the, the high school, was, was writing still in the forefront of where you wanted to go? Yeah, I um I remember in year 12, me and my friend, we made like a zine, which is like a little like do-it-yourself magazine um, of kind of like an alternative yearbook. And I remember not ever being, you know, a popular kid at school, like kind of being like one of the weirdos, but it was kind of <laughs> exciting and strange when all these like people who never ever talked to you came up to you and they wanted a copy of this zine that we had made from like photocopying at Officeworks and that was kind of like a nice moment of I don't know high school triumph to in the very last (laughs) few days of high school be recognized (laughs) by yeah some of the cooler kids for for putting together this like little little magazine. Yeah Uh, I just wanted to actually just touch on your parents story coming over from Vietnam because Mm -hmm. I know there's a really tough but incredible journey behind that to push for a life living in Australia and how Australia was able to offer that kind of second chance for them. Did you want to share that story? Yeah, it's um, it's quite an epic story. So I'll try to tell you a short version. So my dad, in his 20s, uh, the first time he tried to escape Vietnam, and like to give you some context, like the government could do things like just take your family home and you couldn't do anything about it. So that's kind of how repressive it was. So that's why you wanted to escape. And so the first time he escaped, um, he tried to escape via boat and he was unsuccessful. So then he was thrown in this labor camp for six months. And I remember him telling me that it's so intense, like you are constantly hungry for six months and there are too many people uh it's almost like a jail. So you're kind of imprisoned and there's so many people you can't even like sleep properly. So that, you know, he went through that for six months and then he tried to escape again, but they thought they might get caught. So they caught it off at the last minute. And then the third time he tried to escape, the the key thing was you had to do it on a very small boat because if you did it on like a bigger boat that could actually handle being out in the ocean, it was clear what you were trying to do and you would definitely get caught. So they had this small boat, but they gave it like a really powerful motor. And so they escaped. And I think they were at sea for maybe like five days and they might have been running out of food and water. And luckily these Thai fishermen um, found them. And even though the Thai fishermen 
could have gotten in trouble for helping them out. They decided as human beings to help out these other human beings. And then my dad ended up in a refugee camp in Thailand. And he was lucky that at the time, uh, the Thai government didn't want refugees, but the UNHCR said, look, um, we'll process these refugees really quickly if you take them. And so he didn't have to stay there for a really long time. You know, you hear these story, these really sad stories of people being left in refugee camps for like years and years. And the first time Australia like approached him for possible resettlement because he didn't know anyone in Australia, they couldn't take him. And then America approached him but said, we'll only take you if you have all this money, which he didn't have because, you know, he was a refugee. Um, And then the second time Australia decided to take him and he said Australia was the most humanitarian country to approach the refugee camp. And I think that story is amazing, but it's also really sad because Australia now has this really, you know, inhumane reputation for how we how we treat refugees i mean there are people who are who have been in offshore detention for seven years now and they haven't done anything wrong all they wanted was like a better life but you know we've caged them in conditions that the un and amnesty and that international have condemned anyway so he was lucky he got to come out to australia and i think i remember him saying like within 18 days he got a job and then he's just worked ever since you know and i think now It's a lot harder. Like I interviewed an Iranian refugee who, for a story for SBS Food, his name is Arad, and he basically got harassed by corrupt officials and tortured and thrown in jail and they tried to throw his dad in jail and he just knew that he couldn't stay in Iran, so he escaped. Um, And then, a long story short, he ended up, in Australia but in offshore detention for quite a long time and then once he finally got out like he wasn't allowed to work like the visa doesn't allow you to work and it doesn't allow you to um, learn so you can't further your education so all you're allowed to do is go on Centrelink and even though these people are so skilled like they could be contributing to society and he said because the payment is so low he had $4 a day for food every day, which is, you know, that's a real struggle. How do you feed yourself on $4 a day? And he said the wow. only way he could do it was he would wait until just before the local supermarket closed and they just heavily discounted everything because they were probably going to throw out that food anyway. And he waited yeah, until yeah. everything was heavily discounted it, and then he would run in and buy what he could afford. And wow. it's just so sad that australia has gone from a country that was so welcoming and understanding of why people flee these situations that are quite horrific and life-threatening um to just not even giving people a chance like uh, these people want to work like they want to contribute to society this guy from iran arid he was a microbiologist so he would you know, back in Iran, he would, like, analyse blood. He had all these skills and he's not allowed to do that in Australia because he can only do that if he spends, like, thousands and thousands of dollars going to university again, which... Really? Yeah, yeah, which he doesn't because he is, like, a refugee who's come here with not very much. So it's um, 
kind of sad that that attitude has really um, shifted so much. And I think if people understood, I think we spend billions of dollars to like literally lock people up in offshore detention and you could spend a tenth of that and have them in the community and contributing and paying taxes and having jobs and we would just be so much better and it would cost us less and we would get so much more out of it as a society but unfortunately you know the politicians we have think it's a vote winner to let people be locked up yeah and there are um, examples in like regional parts of Australia where they've become like a really key part of society um, I think there's that that suburb that regional suburb in Victoria I think young where they've had a lot of people from the Karen community from Myanmar and they've just become such a key part of that uh, that part of the world so yeah, yeah. They're, they're positive stories, but unfortunately, sometimes you just get the bad tabloid headlines. Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. So, coming to the end of high school, yeah, you're famous around your, your school for creating your own zine <laughs> magazine. When when you leave, what, what was going on there? What, what were your plans after leaving high school? Uh, well, I went and did a degree, which hilariously, no one would ever issue this degree anymore because it's, you know, as old as the dinosaurs. But I did a... A bachelor of, <laughs> I did a bachelor of print media, and like no one offers that anymore because like <laughs> there's not a lot of print media left, and the media has been going through a lot of turmoil and change, and even just this year you've seen so many outlets close in Australia, which is quite heartbreaking. But yeah, yeah. so I I did a bachelor of print media, and basically the first job I got was a place called. HQ magazine which sadly like a lot of print media does not exist anymore and I was an editorial assistant but it was a bit like if you can imagine good weekend like um, like really in-depth stories beautiful photo essays you know I'd write like music reviews I got to interview like some pretty amazing people as well okay so this is this kind of captures for you what working in media is like and then I remember the Thursday, the Thursday before Christmas, we all got called into like the boss's amazing Harbour Harbourview office. And I was just an editorial assistant, which is like the bottom job you can have in media. And I was like, why, are, when, why am I in this very important guy's office? And basically we were all like made redundant. So we all lost our jobs that day. Um and we got the whole, like, it's not you, it's the bottom line kind of speech as I was just looking at this amazing harbour view. Um, so on Thursday, we all lost our jobs. Friday, we had to leave. We have to leave the magazine. Monday, I was so lucky I got a job interview. And then I started wow. working at these, like, independent arts magazines. But then again, fast forward a few years and then everyone lost their jobs because the magazine went out of business and then the next job I was like I can't have another job where we all just we start working somewhere we get excited and everyone loses their jobs because the media industry is so volatile like I don't care where I work next I just want some financial and job security so then that's when I worked at Inside Out magazine which had like such a good team like some of the best people I've ever worked with 
But in terms of the work, like the stuff I was doing was like fact-checking plumbing guides or like carpet guides, fact-checking like the names of taps. So it wasn't like super (laughs) exciting. It wasn't hugely creative. Um, But it was, you know, I I knew my rent would get paid every, you know, fortnight. Um, And the people I worked with were incredible. So... Um, I do want to emphasize that like it's sometimes your your actual work is not amazing but if you work with incredible people that can make your job a lot easier to deal with Um, and that's when I started my blog because like the job I was doing I was trying to do the best job I could but as you can tell like it's not that creative or exciting and I would say there's always such value to um, having a passion project, even if it might never make you money, like it might end up having value in other ways you could never predict. So, yeah, so that's kind of what led me to that path of writing about food. I never, it's not like I did a culinary degree or anything. I just wrote about food because I found it fascinating because like food is about so much. It's not just about you know, what you're physically eating or the taste. It's about, like, culture, geography. Sometimes it's about immigration and politics. It's about the environment. Um, You know, the story behind the people who made it is also interesting, you know. Have they been doing it in their family for centuries or or did they throw in a job at an accounting firm to start a restaurant? You know, there's so much when you talk about food and that's why... Uh, I find it so compelling to cover food. No, I think that's super interesting. There's so much every time I might be playing around with a dish at home and, and, and coming up with this idea. Like when I sit down and look at the dish, I'll just think, wow, like so much, even for me, like there's so much journey from where I started as a chef to where I am now as to why this plate is what it is. And I think that's fascinating that you you bring that up because it is more than just the food. It's like I said, the plates, it's the produce, it's the, the technique, it's the, you know, the, the, the skill, the, the mistakes that you've, you've made to finally come to this dish now. Yeah, like you said, if, if people understood that story, which I think they're slowly growing too as well in the past decade, that you know, having story behind food is really enriching to people and it, and it is becoming more fascinating. So yeah, I think also there's been more of an appreciation recently because of the debates we're having even over like how much food should cost and you know there was this great quote by Dan Hong where Dan Hong really questioned like what people are willing to pay for food and like why people are willing to pay so much for pasta but they refuse to pay above a certain amount for noodles and you know he talked about how you know cacio e pepe people will pay 30 bucks for that even though that's like relatively easy to make and it's just you know <laughs> cheese and pasta and pepper and some pasta water whereas like yeah. you know dumplings like xiaolong bao or you know like dumplings are so hard to make uh, i remember yeah, once uh, yeah i remember once trying to make you know the din tai fung dumplings which have i think 18 pleats in them and it's so hard to get 18 pleats within a dumpling and make it look mm. good but taste good and be like the right size. And also you don't want the dumpling to be too thick or too thin. Um, like everything that goes into making like a really good dumpling, you have to be such a master at getting it right. But then most people would not want to pay more than $10 for some dumplings. 
even though the skill level required to make dumplings is really high. Some dumplings in Chinatown have such uh, inherent value and just because they don't cost, you know, a $400 night out doesn't mean that um, <laughs> they can't, they don't have their own merit and they shouldn't be recognised for uh, the skill that goes into making some dumplings. Oh, I can I can completely second that. I remember when I was staging at Urbane when, in Queensland when Andrew Gunn was head chefing up there before it closed and they had dumplings, a mushroom dumplings as to one of their snacks and I was like, when I was there, they'd teach me how to, how, to, how to do it. And we're there probably, we had to make 60, just small ones too. They weren't even that big. Yeah. Um, and I was, we were just there making it for like two hours, like just yeah. making the dough, but then just like putting the filling in and making sure it was right and it looked mm. perfect like every time and, and getting that fold, like getting that fold mm. is so hard to do. It's, exactly. It genuinely is just a, a, like a mark of skill. Like pasta, it wasn't that hard. Like I've learned how to make pasta and it's like, you know maybe the hardest part is cooking it right you know like so it's you know tastes good but just the Mm. skill and just making the dumpling it's just it's so so difficult all right let's go back it's interesting that you brought up how your experience at hq went for how it did because i wanted to ask in your early days what it was like being as a journalist journalist like how tough was it in the beginning i think i'm lucky in that i've not had too many horrendous experiences. I think the hardest part was just having those jobs at the start and just it didn't matter if you're good at your job or not um, if the magazine went out of business. I think you've heard chefs talk about this as well. Like you feel like it's your fault even though you had – like I had no control over the business side of those magazines (laughs) and like the media industry is really tough and only getting tougher Um, And I think I remember the first time it happened to me, I told my mom and she was like really upset. Like I had like ruined the magazine myself or something like that. (laughs) Um, I think it was more that she was just worried for me. So I think the second time it happened, I think I didn't even tell her because I was like, oh, I don't want to worry her. So I think the toughest thing is working in an industry where there's absolutely like no financial or job security at all and I think recently this happened to so many people but with the pandemic like so many people lost their jobs some people had businesses where they had to like you know let go of 50 staff members it was a really tough time for a lot of people and I remember just having one day where like I was told like three quarters of the regular work I had was just gone so I think yeah constantly having to adjust to just never having any certainty in your life is really hard although in a way it kind of helped me deal with the pandemic because this whole pandemic is about having uncertainty and so having lived with uncertainty for like the last three or so years of my life I was already in that frame of mind where you just take nothing for granted and, you know, even now it's it's re- been really interesting. Like f- my podcast probably has gotten the most coverage it has ever had in the, you know, what, seven or eight years I've been doing it. But ironically, because yeah. I've been trying to like scrabble for work um, and find work so I can pay my bills, I've not been able to do my podcast as much just because constantly trying to find work so you can pay your rent 
that is so time consuming that you don't have the luxury of going, oh, I'm just going to spend 14 hours editing my latest podcast episode. <laughs> yeah, where, yeah. Yeah. Whereas when I was working at Inside Out, like, um, which is, yeah, I think that was the first job I had while I was doing my podcast. You could just go, okay, well, you know, I've done my work for the day. I can go home and like edit my podcast. Or I can edit on the weekend and I know I'm still going to get paid. Whereas when you're freelancing, like every moment where you're not, you know, chasing the work that pays your bills, you kind of know that you're supposedly losing money. So it's kind of a yeah. tough balance between making sure, okay, my rent's covered. I can pay my electricity bill, you know, okay. I can pay my phone bill and then go, oh, okay, now I have some time <laughs> to actually edit my podcast. Like, I think that's the thing I've found the hardest because I really love doing the podcast, but it does take – yeah, I remember doing the Ben Shuri podcast, which I think at the moment is the most downloaded episode I've done. And I found that I think in a way like a bit of a life-changing experience to have that conversation with Ben Shuri and the original – it's kind of amazing because when I first asked him to do it, I really didn't think, A, he would say yes or say yes as quickly as he did. Like I had approached him about a story that I was writing for Gourmet Travel and I said, oh, could I interview you for this story? And he went into this, he gave a very eloquent reason for why he couldn't do the interview. And I said, oh, by the way, I do this podcast. And if you ever happen to be in Sydney, I'd love to interview you for it. And he's like, yeah, I'd love to do it. And by the way, I'm in Sydney next Wednesday. Let's do it then. I was like, oh, wow, that wow. happened. That happened so quickly. And I, <laughs> and I usually tell people uh, it takes around an hour to record the podcast and we were recording and I remember I was up to like 55 minutes and we hadn't I don't think we'd even gotten to Attica like I wasn't even up to the part of his career where I could say oh so tell me about opening Attica and I was like yeah. oh man I'm so sorry my hour is almost up and there's so much I want to ask you I'm, I'm so sorry about this and he's like look you keep asking me questions and when you finish asking questions that is when this podcast is over so you take as much time as you need to. Um, I set aside this time just to talk to you. Um, so wow. just keep asking me questions. And I was just blown away because this is one of the top chefs in Australia. There's so many yeah. people who are asking him for his time. His time is very precious. Um, and so we ended up talking originally for two hours and 40 minutes which is such an amazing <laughs> amount of time. Like, that's longer... Oh, it is, isn't it? Yeah, that's longer than, like, a Lord of the Rings movie. Like, that's how long <laughs> we talked for. And I was just amazed by how generous he was um, with that yeah. time. But I also knew, like, I can't release a podcast that's, like, close to three hours long. Um, so it took me 14 hours to edit it back to just under two hours. And I did it wow. mostly between like, I remember That's I crazy. wrote down, yeah, I wrote down one night I edited from like 10 p.m. to like 3 a.m. Most of the editing I did like at 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. Like I was doing it at night and then getting like four hours sleep and then like working yeah, the next for sure. day. But like the whole time I had this smile on my face doing it because He's, you know, if anyone's heard that episode, he's just got this real zeal and enthusiasm for life and he's so yeah. curious and open 
and so generous with his knowledge and like quite a funny and likable person as well. So even though like I was sleep deprived at 3am <laughs> editing this podcast, I was just smiling the yeah. whole time while I was doing it. So yeah, even though it's a lot of time, I really enjoy doing the podcast, but it's just that balance of like making sure you can afford <laughs> to have your bills paid and then do something that you care about. That's that's the thing that I find just a constant juggle. Yeah, that's that's so funny. Like when I first started my apprenticeship and I'd learned about Attica, which was watching through Chef's Table, if I'm completely honest, when that show came out on Netflix, that was my exposure to a lot of like big chefs around the world. And when Ben Shuri came on there, I think it was only like the third episode or something, or second episode, I was just like, blown away i loved it i loved his story i loved his enthusiasm and i loved his energy towards wanting to just like learn and educate and, and express and and how hard his journey was was just like so heartbreaking as well but he's managed to make it work and the way he approached his food and set it out on a plate was something that i loved and i remember <laughs> i remember my first cafe job fifth ave where I was just like scrubbing and mopping the floors as I was finishing and I was just dreaming. I was like, man, I'd love to work at Attica. <laughs> and I, and that, that, that was, and honestly, that was my, that was my dream job. It's like, you know, if, if I could, if I could get anywhere, it would be Attica. Like that just, mm. that, I love that kind of food, that kind of native, you know, introducing that native food and that, but that kind of cool spin on food and then that attitude as well he had, which I thought was just really unique and cool. And I just like, I really idolized that. And then since going vegan, it, it, it had changed to yellow, which is, you know, I'm there now, which is like, you know, a dream come true, which is also great. But yeah, for a long time, like I would still love to eat at Attica if they do a vegan menu. I don't know. I don't know if they actually do, but I would love to go there and, and just, you know, speak to him because it would have been such an all moment. Like I can just imagine how long you would have wanted to talk to him. <laughs> you know, who knows what will happen with restaurants in Melbourne if they reopen in the form that existed before the pandemic. I reckon you could get a vegan menu at Attica because I've eaten there as a vegetarian. So, oh, right. Yeah. I reckon, I, I okay. think it's the classic thing. As long as you give them notice, they'll, they yeah, should sure. be able to do it. Yeah. I'm, I'm honestly still surprised at the amount of people that come in literally super last minute. If you'd given us notice, totally fine. We could figure that out. But like right now is not the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Especially if you've got a dietary. So yeah, okay. That, that's good to know. Because I would still, I've always still wanted to, to eat there because I do love that kind of style of food. Now, in terms of you being freelance journalist, I know you talked about how tough it was. Were you just wanting to be a freelance journalist most of the time? Or was that just kind of how it played out? Yeah, that was more how it played out because you know, as you can tell, like, it's pretty hard to survive in the industry. But obviously, you have a bit more security when you're working for a magazine or a publication who, you know, are paying your wages, and you do yeah. get sick leave, and you do get holiday leave. Whereas when you're a freelancer, you, it's just you, there's no safety net, your, <laughs> your safety net is like, whatever you've saved, and that's it. Um, so, I mean, obviously there are upsides and downsides to both situations. The upside of being a freelancer is you do have a certain flexibility to your life and flexibility and like slash job insecurity, like maybe flexibility is like the positive side of <laughs> describing job insecurity. Um, the good thing also about being a freelancer is it means that you aren't tied to one publication. So you can write for yeah, Gourmet Traveller yeah. and then you can write for Good Food. Whereas 
if you're on staff at Good Food, you can only write for them. So it it's nice to have that reach because, you know, some people only read one thing or some people haven't heard of this magazine or that magazine. So um, being able to write for a wide range of places is definitely a positive. But it was just simply that struggle of setting your own safety net that was the problem. Yeah, it's hard. And especially now with the, the pandemic because we just don't know how long this whole thing will last for you don't know how long your savings have to kind of cushion you for yeah. um because if all knew like okay in a year's time everything's going to go back to normal you can kind of stretch out your money if you need to for that time but then if it's what mm. two years if it's four years we don't know or is it only going to be six months so that's that's the hard thing and especially now this year it's been hard because the way the media works is even though right now people are reading more than ever, like all these websites and publications are getting bigger audiences, but the mm. advertising market has completely dried up. So even though the audiences are so big uh, because no one's advertising, these publications have either had to like get rid of people or close down um, Wow! because basically ads support everything you read so if you ever read a magazine and you get annoyed by how many ads are in the magazine those ads are basically what keeps that magazine alive yeah that's been the tough thing like there was just a period this year where every other week a new media outlet would close like one week it would be ah oh, buzzfeed australia's doesn't exist anymore and then the next week is like they got a, rid of everyone at Vice Australia except for one person. Um, they got really, rid of, yeah. Um, oh, wow. They closed ten daily, so it's just really hard while you're trying to get enough work to stay alive. But then every other week, someone, you know, some media outlets closing. Oh, and in terms of regional and local newspapers, how many have closed this year? It's like heartbreaking. So having that as a backdrop as you are trying to like financially survive, that's also quite eye-opening as well. So you really don't take anything for granted. You know, when, yeah. when I get work, I'm like so grateful for that work. So I feel lucky yeah. that I have survived so far. Um, whereas I don't know, like if someone was a lot younger and they didn't have much experience, I just think it would be so much harder when you, you haven't quite gotten a name or profile yet. Whereas I'm lucky I've had had some time to, you know, build a little bit of a following with editors and people who know my work so that, you know, I do get some work to keep me afloat. And those ads that are funding these agencies, that's still somebody's job, I'm assuming, this kind of like marketing and sending out jobs, but you obviously just don't need as much. It's not the billboards, it's not you know, the roadside posters, like, but they're just kind of relying on that social media marketing in a sense. Well, I mean, to give you like a really short history of, um, you know, advertising and media, like newspapers used to have these things called classifieds um, where you'd like advertise like a car you want to sell or, um, you know, jobs and that sort of thing. And they used to call them rivers of gold because newspapers just <laughs> made so much money out of that. Yeah. Um, and then things like, you know, online job ads come along, like everything moved online and then newspapers lost so much revenue from that. And right. um, there's also a real big difference between 
how much money you can get for a print ad and an online ad. So this is a while ago, but I think the principle is still the same. Like it used to be if you read the physical um, Sydney Morning Herald, so if you read the print edition, your value to an advertiser was like $52. Whereas if you just read the online edition, your value was like $2 in terms of like what? Yeah, right. Yeah. So that's why there's such um, uh, a vast disparity between what like a print publication can get for its ads as opposed to like Mm. an online publication because there's just so many things online. Um, But also reader habits have changed. Like I remember when I used to buy the newspaper every single day. Um, Now I just subscribe. But most people don't even pay for the newspaper. Most people don't even pay for any kind of media. Um, Mm. So that, again, makes it harder for media outlets to survive. Well, what do you think is the issue with that? Is that simply just because it's easier reading it online? Yeah, I think so. And it's, I think a lot of people don't value how much work goes into making something possible. Like, even if you think about, say, like, the Good Food Guide, which I used to write for ages ago, or even when, like, Gourmet Traveller would have, like, a restaurant guide. Like, think about how much you have to pay to send a writer just to go to that restaurant and spend probably, like, a few hundred dollars, right? If they're, you know, if you Mm. go to Key, that's not going to be a $20 dinner. Uh, So think about you are sending a writer to have like a fairly expensive uh, meal and they need to order quite a few dishes because that has to represent what's on the menu. You can't just go to a place and order one thing because it's not fair to the restaurant if you only try one thing. You have to try uh, enough of a variety to reflect what they're doing. So think about how much it costs just for the food, but then you have to pay. The writer doesn't get that much money, but then paying someone to like check all that writing uh someone to lay it out someone to like edit the whole thing that's just a lot of money and if you're reviewing 300 places or 400 places the bill for that is so huge you know that's why when you buy a good food guide and it costs 30 dollars, that's why it costs 30 dollars. but i think everyone is just used to getting um their content online for free they never think about you know similar to like a lot of chefs get upset when people don't think about how much it costs to put food on a plate i don't think people really comprehend what goes into you know when a newspaper does a story and it's based on an investigation that went for four months imagine having to pay a journalist to work on this story for four months for like one story it's expensive and that's why unfortunately a lot of the stories you see online are like just these really cheap stories that are really easy for someone to generate like when they do like 10 great dishes that feature gold leaf and then they just you know (laughs) rip off um some instagram photos and put it together in half an hour like it's a lot cheaper to produce that story than to pay a journalist to you know i don't know write about the history of Sichuan cuisine you know like that's why what you pay for really does dictate the media you get as well. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's crazy. From someone who's not in journalism like me, it's it's good to understand that kind of, that history because it's kind of like applying that farm to table exactly. journey, but to journalism. Yeah, so, it's the yeah. same thing, yeah. Yeah, that's super interesting. Uh, I did want to have a, a quick brief over chat because I remember you talking about how you had been to a couple of degustations back where the atmosphere had felt like you were a kid who'd snuck into 
an adult party because the vibe of fine dining back then had felt slightly stuffy and you had to sit with your back straight and eat with proper etiquette. Whereas your experience at Bentley, which is what inspired you to start your podcast, I mean, even when I chatted with Simon Evans at Cavo on his experience to the Orana pop-up last year, where they made you eat the degustation with your hands, for example. And it seems as though for a long time, the menu was the most important part, but now one element the restaurants are keen to focus on is, as Danny Denudo would put it, the vibe of the whole thing. And as someone who's kept their keen eye on hospitality for so long, can you share a bit more about what that transition has been like since you started and where do you see it kind of heading? Yeah, it's really interesting. I remember maybe the first or second restaurant I went to where me and my friends saved up to go because we had more than pizza money and, you know... (laughs) More than chips on pizza, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And the staff were just, like, really snooty towards us, like, you know, sarcastically saying, oh, can I take your backpack, please? You know, because we're just like... (laughs) In our 20s and we're wearing sneakers and, you know, we don't have expensive handbags, you know, like um, we just have backpacks because like we're making like twelve fifty an hour, you know, <laughs> and I and we we thought the food was amazing, but we just spent the entire time feeling like they don't want us to be here. You know, they would rather that we were investment bankers. And then at yeah, Bentley, sure. it was just fun. You could joke with the staff. You never felt like judged for how much money you didn't have. And I think, and I think, um, you know, Brent Savage, who you know co-owns Bentley, I think that's something that he's always been really um, focused on to make sure that everyone feels welcome at his restaurant. Yeah. And yeah. and I think that's why people keep going back to his restaurants. I think mm. another thing that really changed the atmosphere in restaurants is in Sydney over the last decade or so is um, maybe in the mid-2000s, a lot of the supposed top restaurants, they were all like French restaurants, white tablecloths. You'd have to spend hundreds of dollars. Um, they were all tasting menu. And it was very like stiff and proper and, you know, expensive and... You know, you felt like you were going to the school principal's office, um, even though, you know, <laughs> these are like, you know, not to disparage the level of technique or care that went into these restaurants. Like the people who ran these restaurants obviously cared about what they were doing. But if you went to a bunch of these places, you couldn't you couldn't eat at them very often because everything was so buttery and heavy and so rich. Yeah. Like there wasn't like a lot of balance. And then I think because of David Chang and what he did with Mama Fuku noodle bar overseas and then that inspired like um you know a wave of young chefs in sydney um to open restaurants that weren't super expensive but more like where they would want to go with their friends and i think key to that were places like bloodwood opening uh, which was run by a bunch of young chefs from claude's Mm. dan hong opening miss g's uh, Mitch Orr opening Duke Bistro, like just a wave of really accessible places that didn't cost as much. Uh, you know, they could play really fun music. Um, you didn't have to yeah. like get super dressed up to go there. You didn't have to like save for four months to go to these places. And then as we got more accessible places, I think the attitude kind of dropped because you were going to places run by like fairly young people who didn't need you to be on, you know, your best behavior. 
I think that just brought <laughs> in a wave of it just became a lot more democratic, I think. And then I think the attitude kind of changed and like places just became more fun to go to and you could still have a place where the chef was just so unbelievably talented, but you could have fun. That's a sign of like I think a healthy food scene where there is so much variety and it's accessible to um, people of different demographics um, and that you can like go to Chinatown and have an amazing meal and if you don't mind saving up you can go to Sixpenny or Siebo and also have a good meal as well. Yeah. Do you think that these experiences that you had through your journalism career were the basis of why you wanted to pursue journalism in hospitality specifically as opposed to anywhere else? You know, that whole thing, that just happened by accident. Like, I just started a food blog because I just wanted to, like, remember those experiences, like, eating at Bentley. And also to remind people that there's so much in Sydney you don't know. Like, there's so much to be excited about. So, you know, I never set out to be, like, a food journalist. Like, before that, I wrote about arts. I wrote about music, you know. I would interview photographers or choreographers or authors, you know. I would review dvds like i still kind of think of myself as someone who just writes you know i don't think of myself as oh i can only write about food that's all i'm capable (laughs) of writing about like you know i do do other things like i've had a show on fbr radio for more than 10 years now where i play like australian music and that's something you know i'm interested in one of my favorites yeah. yeah one of my favorite stories that i wrote last year was about um this japanese artist in tokyo who you know in a culture that is like advanced in so many other ways but gender relations is unfortunately you know there's a long way to go in japan in terms of gender relations yeah um, i remember reading that one yeah yeah but that this woman was taking this like very traditional japanese art form and then approaching it from like a very modern female perspective. Like it was so awesome to talk to her and about how she would sometimes like lie on this gurney and like for like 12 hours at a time applying this like this paint in this very classical style in such like a laborious way where you have to like, it's like mixing rocks with water and you kind of have to put it on your finger and you have to like dab it onto the canvas. But supposedly... If you do it in that style, that painting will last a thousand years. So I think, yeah, I think I just find anyone who is like passionate about what they're doing really interesting. Yeah, a good story is always infectious, and a good attitude is very invigorating, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, I wanted to touch on the different scenes you're at. We've talked a lot about you in hospitality, Mm. but. You mentioned you're involved in the music scene and writing as well. You've had articles published in the Rolling Stone, right? Yeah, a while ago. Uh, like I've, I've had a few profiles of bands in Rolling Stone and I used to like review albums for Rolling Stone back in the day. But, you know, often it's so much more interesting interviewing someone from hospitality because a lot of the time in music you might be interviewing someone and they're 19 and they just recorded some music and they don't have a lot of life experience and their song is just based on, you know, how they rhyme the word love with above, you know, like they don't (laughs) yet have a lot to talk about. 
Whereas often yeah, when yeah, you yeah. talk about, and it's not their fault, they're just really young. Like I've interviewed so many bands who are just young and they feel like, oh, why should I be here on a Sunday night talking to you? You know what I mean? It's just, they're, <laughs> they're just young and they haven't, you know, experienced a lot. You know, I'm not like blaming them in any way. It's just where they're coming from. Whereas often if someone's like gone to the trouble of setting up a cafe or like running a bakery or like becoming a chef, like the pathway is so difficult and challenging that when you ask them about anything, they're so interested and they're so excited to talk to you about it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And that is one way where I think talking to hospitality is a lot more rewarding than perhaps someone who yeah is 19 and they just happen to write a song that's catchy but they haven't yet figured out what they want to say one of the biggest aussie artists i grew up loving was tim minchin oh yeah whom you've had the opportunity to interview i think it was about 15 years ago oh my god wow Yeah. I'm just curious, how much of that do you remember? And can you share that story? I'm I'm curious to see what went on. It was quite a long time ago. And it was when I was working on an arts magazine. And the idea was you set it up so that they interview someone else, although you record it and make sure it goes okay. So it was Tim Minchin interviewing Eddie Perfect. And I think because they were friends, (laughs) it was always going to go quite well yeah I and I remember seeing Tim Tim Minchin at that point in his career you know he'd come from Western Australia um, and I remember seeing him perform at the opera house in the studio to maybe like a few hundred people max and then just to see how his career has blown up and him winning all those awards for Matilda and yeah that's pretty amazing it's pretty cool. Like, I, I remember seeing him on Sideshow Alley, which was like a comedy show on SBS, huh. I think, when I was in, like, primary school, high school. And that was the, kind of wow. the first bit of exposure. I mean, and then Spicks and Specs as well was he'd kind of occasionally pop on there. And I just, like, I love that kind of style. So when I started playing piano at, like, 15, his music was kind of that humorous, wow. funny kind of... Because he's really talented on the piano. Yes. Like, there's no doubt about that. And what's this about going back in time to retrieve the cassette tape? Oh, geez. Oh, I don't know if I can even play it because you used to record um, interviews on these micro cassettes. (laughs) I don't know if you can even find a player that would play that stuff. I did unearth like a box of them and I just don't know what to do with them because I can't play them, but I don't want to throw them out. That's so funny. That's a piece of art right there. Hang that up on the wall or something. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) All right. So and just to touch on your journalism in film. I know you dabbled a bit there. Ah. What were some of the jobs you were involved in? I think I mainly wrote some film reviews and I might have interviewed a few directors. I remember interviewing the director Wong Kar Wai who who made In the Mood for Love. Mm. That's probably his most famous film. I just remember that situation where most of the time you're lucky and you're given an interview... Um, and you might get like half an hour to talk to someone or maybe even a whole hour. And they only gave me 10 minutes, yeah, which is like pretty intense <laughs> because like if you, you've only got 10 minutes, you don't want to blow it. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You don't want to ask like five dud questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was at this, it was at this hotel by the Harbor, maybe the Park Hyatt. And 
with these, they call them media junkets. They just line up the interviews one after the other after the other. So he'd be doing like 10 interviews in a row. And the people before me, I think maybe they were from a Japanese newspaper or something. Um, and they kept asking him questions and then they started to eat into my time and I could see my time disappearing from like 10 minutes to nine minutes. And then in the end, I only had like five minutes to interview him. And it's just so hard when you only have five minutes and you hope that like the five (laughs) minutes you get, you get something out of it. Um, And I think I remember... At the time, he had made his follow-up to In the Mood for Love, a film called 2046, and it took him so long to make. Like, it just went over schedule to the point where I think it was meant to screen at the Cannes Film Festival, and he was so late that they needed, like, a police escort for him to get the film to the cinema (laughs) on time. And so I remember asking him, like, oh, you know, um, why did this film go so behind schedule and he said something like you know sometimes I think you're on a train and you think you should get off the train but then you realize you should stay on the train (laughs) um, because it's more interesting to stay on the train and I think he was saying that he should have gotten off the train earlier but he just couldn't uh, and he just stayed on the train much longer than he should have yes I feel like for the five minutes I got I did get an interesting conversation but it was it was tough just to watch those those minutes leak away. I had a similar situation where I was given half an hour to interview Dan Barber um, from Blue Hill at Stone Barns. And again, like, I was like, oh, half an hour? That's so much time. <laughs> and then I turned up to the interview and it was a TV crew interviewing him before me. And again, they just kept eating into my time. And then in the end, I think I had like 17 wow. minutes and I had to throw out half of my questions but I remember asking him about how he grows like barber wheat like he grows his own wheat his own specific breed of wheat and I said oh why why go to the trouble of like growing your own specific wheat and he gave this very technical answer and I think something I learned at uni is even if you come across as a total dumbo it's more important that you ask a stupid question to get a good answer rather than care whether you come across as ignorant. Like, it's better you just ask a question, even if you're like, oh, sorry, I just don't understand. Yeah, yeah. And I remember saying, but if you're not a wheat nerd, like, why would you go to the trouble of growing your own wheat? Because he was talking about, I don't know, bushels per acre or something. I didn't fully understand his answer. Yeah, yeah. And then he just gave this really good answer of something about... I think he laughed and said, I never thought I'd be a wheat nerd. (laughs) And then he said, the reason you grow your own wheat is you're reminded that wheat is actually a grass and it should taste like something. And it shouldn't slap... It won't slap you in the face like a glass of wine. Yeah. But his answer was just so eloquent that I was just so glad that I asked that, even though... He probably thought I was an idiot for asking him. Yeah. Like, what? No, actually, why do you grow your wheat? And so, yeah, that's why I think it's important. It doesn't matter how I, as the interviewer, come across. If someone's like, oh, what an idiot. It's more important to have that answer. And you know, the funny thing, after that interview, he said to me, 
oh, do you have any plans to go to New York? And I, at that time, I had like zero plans to go to New York. And then he said, oh, here's my email address. If you ever go to New York, hit me up and I'll take you on a tour of the farm. Wow. And I worked out that the best time to email him was actually Sydney time, 3 a.m. <laughs> on a Tuesday. <laughs> so I stayed up till 3 a.m. I wrote this email that I hoped would be compelling but short enough that he'd have time to read it i made the i made the subject header i think i said something like from the journalist who called you a wheat nerd <laughs> or something and hoped he would remember that i remember pressing send at 3 a.m going to bed getting up to go to work checking my phone at like 8 a.m and of course there was no email i was like oh you idiot as if as if Dan Barber would even have time to reply <laughs> to you. Like, come on. And then I remember having a crazy day at work, going to like grab my lunch, checking my phone, and the phone had an email from Dan Barber. I was like, what the <laughs> hell? He replied to me. And then the email said like, yeah, hey, of course I remember you. I might not be there the day you, are, you know, he's like, thanks for getting a booking. I might not be the day that you're there for dinner, but I've CC'd my restaurant manager, Philippe, and he can organize the the tour of the farm for you. And then Philippe was so nice. And he said, I've taken the liberty of changing your booking from 9.30 p.m. to actually making it 6 p.m. Um, so that you can do the farm tour around 5 p.m. Wow. Um, while it's still light, which was like, so much nice. Like, come wow. on, like, it's so much nicer to have, like, a dinner at 6 p.m. Yeah. than at, like, 9.30 p.m. Um, and also, because if you're staying in Manhattan, um, well, I was staying in Brooklyn, but if you're in, like, New York City, you still have to get to Blue Hill at Stone Bars. It's still, like, I think, basically an, an hour. You have to get, like, a 40-minute train ride from Grand Central Station, and then you have to get, like, a cab from Tarrytown. So it's still a mission yeah. to get there. Um, and I remember we went on a tour of the farm. It was really incredible. All the stuff they grow is amazing. <laughs> like you see all the the brassicas and the sunflowers and you see like the staff throwing pumpkins at each other. Yeah. Um, and you see like the turkeys and there's just so much happening um, at Blue Hill at Stone Barns. And then we had this amazing dinner. What's crazy is so we started at 6 p.m. We had things like uh, one of his farmers likes habanero peppers, the chilies. Yeah. But he wondered, could you breed the habanero chili so it's just sweet and fruity and not have any of the heat? And he did that. And one of the courses is just that habanero Um where you're eating it and it's just like eating a really sweet capsicum, you know, it's just like really sweet. So different to eating like a normal chili, yeah, yeah. like which you usually have like as a garnish, but this as the main event, you know, there's a part where, you know, you go into the bakery and they show you like the three kinds of bread they make and the different wheat they use. Yeah, it was such a uh, yeah, such an incredible experience. Man, just from that one one comment of a wheat nerd, hey, he can get all that. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right, that's right. <sighs> Far out. So you go. How funny! You're worried about seventeen minutes of your time, and you got a whole experience in yeah. New York. <laughs> yeah, that's Isn't right. Isn't it funny how things work out? <laughs> that's right.
This is the end of part one of Roots Podcast with Lee Tran. Be sure to tune in next week for part two.